Welcome to the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. I'm delighted to welcome to the show today two of my favorite colleagues, Christina Chan. Christina is the director of the Climate Resilience Practice here at WRI. Christina, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Lawrence. And Naranjali Amarasingha, a senior associate in the Finance Center. Welcome. Hi. The two of you have written a fascinating new commentary, Deploying Adaptation Finance for Maximum Impact. And I think this is interesting to listeners who may not be that interested in finance because it poses a fundamental question in the age of rapid climate change impacts, what we've seen this summer with record temperatures and uh, fires. And I think everybody understands that the age of climate impacts is upon us now. What does that mean? for development? Should we be doing development differently? And you argue here, spoiler alert, that we have to be doing development totally differently, that all development needs to be informed by adaptation. What does that then mean for specialized adaptation efforts and adaptation finance? So um, I think that this is a, a fascinating question. You unpack it very well. Christina, I want to start by asking you, how did this development adaptation dichotomy come to be? Who would have thought that development is one thing and adapting to climate change is different or an add-on? It seems to me that if you're going to adapt to climate change, you need to develop differently. That's a really great question, Lawrence. I think part of it is the history of where climate change sits. Um, and climate change has historically sat with ministries of environment, right? It's an environmental issue. It's your environmental uh, ministries that go to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, the global negotiations um, that arrived at the Paris Agreement, for example, in 2015. And so because climate change historically sits within the environment ministry or environment departments, it's, it's not where the development, um, the, the players who are engaged in international development are. Um, whether you're talking internationally or domestically in a given country, right? So it's your environment ministry that thinks about climate change. It's your, your maybe your agriculture ministry or your water ministry that thinks about how do you develop at home. And because the, the two fields have kind of grown up in separate silos, um, I think that's part of why you see a separation or traditionally the separation between adaptation and development. And, and Naranjali, what has been the implication of that, those separate ministries, this bureaucratic divide, if you will, for development finance and for climate finance? Well, that I think also sits in how climate change or responses to climate change have developed in the international world. So there is a special convention that addresses climate change issues and agreements that have stemmed from that. And within that convention is an obligation to provide climate finance. The developed countries, those who have had the benefit of um, developing more in these last decades, uh, have an obligation to provide finance to developing countries to help them address... Both for reductions both of emissions, for reduction which and, they call mitigation, right. and for adaptation. Yes. And in asking funders then to say we are providing climate finance, it raises this question about what is climate finance and how is it different from development aid that developed countries have been providing to developing countries in previous years. So that desire to try to separate what's development dollars and what are adaptation dollars or climate dollars 
has led to um, a discussion about what's development and what's adaptation and how is adaptation different from development. Do, I would, do, I, I'm sorry. sorry, go ahead, Christina. Morris, I would just add, I, I think the, in addition to what Nira just said, there was also, um, what was it, maybe 10 years ago, there was a call. Because, so there's this, um, there's a belief that climate change, right, it, it's not, it, it's caused by the actions that we take, right? And therefore, and the impacts of those, those actions are felt more by poorer countries. Uh, poorer countries tend to rely on more climate-sensitive uh, sectors. They, they're typically in hotter places, right? And so there's this, this moral justice piece to it that uh, we didn't cause this problem, we feel it. And people suffer first and worst, and they didn't cause the problem. And therefore, um, there's this view that development assistance is, is sort of charity, right? Like, we do it because out of the goodness of our hearts. That's the view. Whereas climate assistance is not out of charity. It's, it's different. And there's so there was a moral obligation to provide this because we created exactly. pain and suffering for other people. And, and so along those lines, there was a push for climate assistance particularly adaptation assistance, to be above and beyond development assistance, right? That it is, it is not the charity that, that you give to us. Um, it, is, it is something that was caused and that we're living the impacts, and therefore it has to be different. This goes back to the idea some of our listeners will remember before the Paris negotiation that there should be $100 billion of climate finance. This was... Uh, I guess, a, a commitment made at one point by the North in response to demands from the South. Um, I guess, depending on how you account for it, views differ as to whether or not that was ever delivered. But it was seen as, correct me if I'm wrong, the developing world's demand in order to agree to go forward with climate reduction and to implement their own emissions reduction strategies, the rich world had to pay. And they had to pay not only to offset the costs of emission reduction, but they had to pay something towards adaptation to get it going. That idea kind of went away, didn't it, with the bottom of Paris Agreement? Christina's shaking her head like crazy. Nope. No? Absolutely not. <laughs> it's still there. The, the 100 billion goal, it, it is a reflection of the fact that there is an obligation for developed countries to provide finance to developing countries, both to mitigate and to adapt to climate change. The 100 billion number is not necessarily a response to a, a methodological assessment of the needs of developing countries, but it was, a, it was a number that seemed big enough at that moment to uh, foster confidence that developed countries were serious about providing finance to developing countries. Uh, and, and the goal is something that they're attempting to reach by 2020, uh, uh, to $100 billion per year. Uh, that goal and trying to ramp up that goal is something that is part of the Paris Agreement and the rules of implementation that will go along with it. I see. So you've explained very well sort of the history of why these things were seen as separate. They were in different ministries. There was the climate justice component that the climate finance both emissions reduction, that is mitigation and adaptation, should be additional, the concept of additionality that it should come on top of. So, Christina, why does that then create a problem of having these two different buckets of money? Because people don't live in silos, right? If you're, if you're, if you're living in a rural community um, in Malawi, 
uh, and you're trying to farm and the growing seasons are changing because your rainy seasons are no longer predictable as they had been, it really doesn't matter like whether the flavor of the money is development assistance or the flavor of the money is adaptation. That farmer is, is, is trying to survive and eke a living. Um, and the living in, upon which he makes his, his earnings is based on a climate sensitive sector, right? And so the, the, the type of policies, the type of capacity building, the type of technology, the governance, institutions, all of that, the, the support that that farmer, that particular farmer needs, it, it's, not, it's not a distinct, well, adaptation money will do that or development money will do that. It really is about how do you get development assistance and not just international assistance but domestic assistance in that given country delivered to that farmer in a way that enables him to or her to make smarter decisions. So that's very helpful to me. Let's take that example. I think you said Malawi of the farmer who faces now more erratic uh, rainy season. What would the traditional development assistance paradigm that doesn't take into account adaptation needs, where, where would that have gone wrong? Uh, maybe as the first step, and then we'll come and think about how the adaptation being separate is wrong, and then I want you to, for the grand finale, maybe we'll switch and arrange tell us what would it look like if it all came together. But what would the, the traditional development assistance would say, we don't know that the rainy seasons are going to be different, right? We've, they've always been the same, so we're going to do our irrigation project based on past trends rather than future predictions. Am I getting that right? Yeah. And, and this is not to devalue the agriculture community in that sector and everything they've done in the last you know decades in terms of improving agricultural productivity, improving food security more broadly. Um, doing it differently, though, just using that example of that farmer, um, is providing that farmer with actionable, usable information ahead of a, uh, of a growing season, for example, so that he or she knows or has a better, um, takes some, some better risks in terms of what to plant and when to plant it, what crop variety to plant and when to plant it. Plant it. Other pieces are, um, from a more systemic perspective, is uh, a given state in a given country may be subsidizing a particular crop that's really water water um, intensive. But we know with climate change that water availability will become, uh, will become more scarce. And so do we continue to build irrigation systems in order to increase crop production here and now? Or do we think about longer term climate risks and maybe we need to, in addition to helping farmers at, on a seasonal basis or an annual basis, think in longer terms, what can we do to build the capacity of a given community to, to do something else, to diversify their livelihoods into, into things that are less climate sensitive. I'm, I'm reminded recently we had a very good blog post reporting on Costa Rica where the increased average temperatures mean that the coffee is uh, getting diseases, it's no longer as profitable, production and quality have gone down, and the farmers are increasingly shifting into oranges, but the government support mechanisms are still all around coffee. So that would be an example where an adaptation, maybe citrus is going to buy you some time, exactly. but then the government needs to say, I guess we should shift some of the energy we've been putting into promoting and assisting coffee to assisting those farmers who are trying other crops, in this case, oranges. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, Naranjali, 
what would that integration of the development finance and adaptation finance look like if we come back to this example then in Malawi? How would things be different? So from a, from a funding standpoint, I think the critical question you need to ask in any intervention is how does this address climate risks and vulnerabilities? Uh, and with, so with adaptation, that's, that's what you need to look at. It's not, um, it's not so easy to separate the adaptation component from the development component in these kinds of examples where you're dealing with agricultural production or water, water scarcity. Uh, the, the intervention that you might do to address water scarcity might also be the intervention that you, are, that you do to address drought that is further driving water scarcity in that region. So rather than focusing on whether or not a particular intervention is development or adaptation, what you should be doing is looking at the context and understanding what the vulnerabilities are of the people who live there and the ecosystems that are there and the risks that they face from climate impacts, and then determining whether the intervention that is being proposed is something that will or has a chance of addressing those risks and vulnerabilities. So development experts, whether they're in... In, in water or in agriculture or in urban planning or whatever, they need to become more climate smart, take into account anticipated climate impacts. What does this mean for the adaptation community? These people is like, we're what we, you know, what we do is adaptation. Do they then become advisors to the development community? They work more closely with the development people? What do they do differently? I think you need both. I think you need special, so this is, it's still a new field, right? Well, it shouldn't be a field of its own, but this whole idea of doing development differently in response to climate change, it's a new, it's a relatively new thing. And so I think you still need specialized technical experts and you need specialized funds. We can't expect the, the kind of transformation that we need in terms of um, adapting our development practice adapting our economic systems to to this changing climate we can't expect that to happen without dedicated specialized funds or without dedicated specialized experts and you have a good list towards the end of the commentary of these uh, specialized funds there's the green climate fund something called adaptation fund least developed countries fund special climate change fund pilot program for climate resilience bilateral sources so there's a fair number of these things out there. If development and adaptation need to be fully integrated and we still need special funds, what do those funds do? Do they come in and pay the difference between a traditional development project and the adaptation piece that gets added on? Is that the right way to think about it? Well, I'm not entirely sure that it's paying the difference, partly because in some situations it's very difficult to calculate what that difference is. So what I tend to think about it as leading by example, right? Climate funds, specialized climate funds can, can lead the way in showing how you do uh, development differently. So they, those funds can promote a very strong um, articulation of or reasoning planning around climate rationale, uh, have those be clear criteria in what they're supporting, and that encourages countries to think about that when they are planning for uh, development and adaptation. In, in many developing countries, it, 
the promise of specialized climate funding can strengthen the position of environment ministries where climate typically sits and allow them to have a much better dialogue with other ministries that are that are engaging in development activities. So th they can open doors, I think, in, in uh, how developing countries can integrate climate considerations into all of their development planning. Christina, did you have something you wanted to add to that? I think um, one of the things we touch upon in that commentary is the importance of building long-term institutional capacity at the national level and at the sub-national level. And so I think part of what Nira was saying in terms of leading by example, th there's a role for these specialized adaptation funds to help build overall capacity uh, of governments uh, at the national level, at the city level, state level, to understand what climate risks they face, to understand what options exist to deal with those risks and vulnerabilities, to make decisions. A lot of these decisions are not going to be easy ones. There'll be trade-offs. Um, and then to implement, right? And so we often, we, we, can, we can think about um, these adaptation funds as funding these projects, right? Like, a, like an, an agriculture project or, or an irrigation project. I, I think that there is value in these specialized funds and also investing in capacity so that if you invest in capacity, there are longer term, more systemic impacts than just investing in a project. Um, thank you so much. You know, I'm reflecting on this. It sounds pretty technical. Uh, a lot of the words are complex. Um, we had the wonderful example of Malawi. The, the story about the coffee and the citrus in Costa Rica can help to bring it to life. But I'm just struck with the, at least my sense, I mean, you're the experts, but you tell me if you think differently, that climate impacts are coming fast and furious and that we are maybe not very well prepared for them and that the need for adaptation is, is more urgent than people in the development community and other people often um, believe. And so this idea of integrating adaptation development is really is really central and, and will be critical to the lives of millions of people. I couldn't have said it better, Lawrence. Um, I, I, just to add to what you said, I think there are decisions we make today, investments we make today, that will have long-term impacts. Um, just be more specific, infrastructure, right? Um, we can spend trillions of dollars uh, building new infrastructure that will that we intend to last the next 70 to 100 years. And if we don't take climate risks into account, we, we build something that is not going to be sustainable in terms of sea level rise, in terms of heat um, as, as the average temperatures go up. That, that, is a, that is an inefficient use of public taxpayer money, in my opinion. And so we need to be taking into account these risks today because the, the, we're, we could be locking ourselves into inefficiency and, and maladaptation. In the climate finance world, we've seen that the trend so far has been to spend a lot more money on mitigation or reducing emissions. I think the solutions there have been a little bit more straightforward um, to come by or more tangible for people. Uh, and there's been much less money going into adaptation. So we urgently need to ramp up finance for adaptation uh, in that spectrum as well. And at the same time, make sure that the whatever money we're putting into development is fully informed by adaptation needs.
Thank you both very much. I'm going to wrap it up there and close by urging our listeners to read your terrific commentary, Deploying Adaptation Finance for Maximum Impact. And I like the subtitle, Moving Beyond the Adaptation Versus Development False Dichotomy. It is indeed a false dichotomy. And you two put it to bed very nicely. Thank you very much. My guests today, Christina Chan and Aranjali Amarasingha, thank you so much. Until next time, uh, this is the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. Thank you for listening.